right as the rotor turns we're back and uh i've been getting a lot of good comments about the podcast absolutely uh, it's uh like people come up to me at the store like guys uh you know it's obviously people we know you know like i know they're like hey man love the fucking podcast it's awesome so uh today i'm excited about what we're going to talk about before we get there let's talk about this disclaimer there we go all right so this is my opinion carlos Tavares, not the opinion of the rescue company one or any of its uh people that hire the rescue company one and it was employees or anybody that employs me this is just me talking about what I want to talk about. And if I offend you, shut the fucking thing off. So you don't have to listen. It's a free country. <laughs> this is not like a communist country where they make you play the same shit. And this is what you got to listen to. So uh, that being said, dude, it's, I, I've been waiting to do an actual podcast where we talk about some medical stuff. Like what we do and what we teach, you know, like... <laughs> What's funny is, it, 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 and I know we talked about this earlier, the reason that I really wanted to do this is because, like, now we've, like, we're seven or so episodes in, and um, I'm always afraid to say what episode we're on because, yeah. you know, it could show up on a different queue, you know? Yeah, yeah. But um, anyways, we're deep into it enough where people have listened, and then, like, you know, other guys, dude, when you go do some shit like you do in class, how you talk some stuff, and, you know, so... Um, we're going to give people kind of like a taste of what things look like when you come to <laughs> their medical class and how we explain things and why we do things a certain way when you come to class. However, that being said, there's going to be some haters out there right off the bat. So that's cool. You can send all the hate mail you want to all <laughs> our uh, uh, social media pl- platforms, which <coughs> Ryan, which are they? Uh, well, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Um, you know, as far as uh, social media goes, but podcasts, you know, there's all the big platforms out there. Yeah. You know, but yeah, if you want to come hate on us, you know, YouTube or uh, Facebook's a good place to do it. Hey, send, send some hate mail out, man. Like, you know, <laughs> this is the cool thing is that at this point of the game, um, what I'm going to talk about and, and what we're going to share today um, is successful. People pass the fucking exams. Yeah. And, and you know, when you <clears> come, <throat> one of the common calls that I get is that people go like, hey, I'm coming to your class. Uh, what's the certification at the end of classes? They recognize. I said, well, um, I'm going to give you a bunch of certificates that you earn while you're here. Stuff that you, you know, some NAEMT stuff. You get some cards. Um, and I do give you certificates for the hours you spend here. But that's all the certificates that we give you here. We, you know, we're CAPSIS accredited. So you're going to get 80 hours of CAPSIS uh, credits. You know, um, you'll get some nursing credits. The biggest thing is that we don't certify you for shit. Um, what you get certified by is the, the the Board of Specialty Certifications. They will give you the flight paramedic exam or the CFRN exam. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the flight paramedic exam or the critical care exam. And then the nurses, they can take the CFRN you know, uh, exam and so on and so forth. So um, BCEN puts on the CFRN exam. So that's who certifies you. That's what gives you the board certification. Um, if you go to any other class that tells you you're critically care certified, well, cool. But that doesn't make you certified in critical care. The board certification makes you certified in critical care. Does it make sense? Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of times I go teach places and, like, you know, you do the PowerPoint that in – or you give somebody a business card and it has all those, like, initials after your name and stuff. And I, I got a bunch of them. And it isn't that I'm trying to impress anybody or anything like that, but it's just the fact to show you that when you come to class, I have taken the same exams as you. That I, the, the exams you, you're striving to take, I've taken them. Right. Um, I don't certify by CEs. I take the test. I absolutely take the test every time. Uh, so if I need to, you know, renew um, this much certification, then I go take the exam. And I have all the nursing board ones that we teach for. So I have the uh, certified flight nursing uh, certification. I'm a certified emergency room nurse, uh, certified uh, uh, transport uh, registered nurse. I'm a trauma registered nurse certified. I'm the flight, uh, um, flight paramedic certified and critical care paramedic certified and uh, tactical paramedic certified. So I'm taking all the exams. Um, 
you know, the only one I haven't done is the community-based paramedic one, which I'm going to be taking here in a couple months. We're putting one of those programs together. And, yeah, so I take the exams, and that's how I know what's on it, and that's how I can provide the information. Num- point number two here, Ryan, is that I have a learning disability. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. I take medicine for it every day. Um, I got horrible dyslexia. Um, and there's just uh, my reading speed is very slow. So what it takes me to read, <laughs> you know, a paragraph um, you know, you may read a lot faster than me, you know, and my retention is really slow. So I have to read something multiple times to retain it. Um, so I know how it feels when people are struggling to get through the exam. So I teach it from that standpoint, the standpoint of, uh, how can a learning disabled person be successful in this exams? Yeah. And that's, and that's where, that's where you're getting when you come here. So today we're going to talk about airway and the FPC exam. Cool. All right. So, um, so you, you, I think that we teach people to be successful at knowing what they need to do to capture an airway in the in the environment we work in. You know what I mean? So, in essence, it's kind of like a head fake. A lot of people think that I'm teaching them how to be successful on the exam, which I am. I'm doing that, uh, but I'm also making them successful. For the real patient. Because at the end of the day, the patient don't, don't care if you passed your FPC or not, right? <laughs> they want to know, can you intubate and stuff like that. So we have people that come to class and, you know, more. I would say that if we had a class of 20 people, you may have nine of those people in that class that are coming in that are never going to work on an airplane or a helicopter. Or they're never going to be in a critical care ambulance or not. They're just here just to get more education. So that person takes what we teach them, and it makes them a better paramedic when they go on their ambulance. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So so let's talk about some airway and the airway questions as they present on the FPC exam. But what I want you to keep in the back of your mind is that I'm teaching you what works in real life. Where do I come from there? No, I'm taking the FPC exam. Um, you know, it just turned 20 years this year, the FPC exam. Okay. So I took it year three of his existence. So, you know, my number's 380. 380. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you're proud of that shit, man. You can look that shit up. You see, you see, hey, that motherfucker's on there, 380. So, you know, when you look at that, like, I've, you know, I've renewed. You know, it's good for four years, so I've renewed it every time, like, this, you know, again, by taking the exam. But when you look at the uh, the the questions – if you were to ask me, somebody that's seen multiple versions of it in, in the last, you know, 20 years, has it changed? Not really. Maybe, you know, certain meds aren't given in certain ways and stuff like that. There's new terminology here and there, um, new different devices. But otherwise, psh, airway's a fucking airway, man. And in most, like, really good airway classes, uh, we can talk to Dr. Ron Walls, which, again, is another product we can pr- provide here at the rescue company, is uh, the, uh, not to make this shit sound like a rescue company one commercial, but <laughs> we do the the difficult airway EMS class here. You know, we just got that last year. And, uh, you know, the COVID kind of put a hampering on that. We, we, were, we, we weren't able to teach it as much as we want to. So we're hopefully this year is going to be a new, better year for that. But when you talk about an airway, I think you need to remember the definition of insanity. Sorry, I'm, the alcohol is kicking in real quick. Gotcha. Yeah. So what's the definition of insanity? Well, the definition you're asked, you're looking for isn't the actual definition of insanity. I knew. Hey, hey, <laughs> God damn it, I'm fucking good at this. So, bro, I knew you were going to say that shit. <laughs> I even wrote it down on my piece of paper right here. I said, Ryan's going to say that that's not the definition. What is the actual definition of it? So I don't want to try to say that I can recall exactly what the definition of insanity is, but I've certainly made sure that I'm able to have this conversation by looking at the definition and knowing (laughs) that it isn't isn't what you were asking me to say. Oh man! Uh, But I mean, basically, the definition of insanity is like just um, if I if I had to try to pull it out of my ass the best I can remember. Let let me stop you there real quick. (laughs) Go ahead. Let me stop you there real quick. (laughs) Does it it bother you that I know you this well at this point? No. If it if anything. I'm not even surprised, and I might even be able to, if I, if I sit here and talk to myself enough, might even be able to tell myself that I almost expected you to, to be like, 
Uh, let me at least I can at least say I'm not surprised that you did what you just did. And, oh and, man, and, and, I love it. Like, I, I, but at no means I was not caught off guard or surprised. Oh, yeah. So, so <laughs> give me give me what what it should be at, at your def, the definition as you recall it. So you're so, paraphrasing. You know. So if I had to paraphrase uh, to to the best of my ability, basically, um, insanity is to to be incapable of making um, I guess logical sound judgment based off of uh, I guess. What would be considered commonly acceptable um, deduction of like your surroundings and like how to interact with it, or you know, to to kind of fall so, in so, suit with us. So basically, a normal, rational person would not continue to repeat a behavior that is that is wrong, See, right? No, no, because then you know, because that, that, that's going back into that answer of what you're looking for. Excuse me, of what you're uh, looking for is what it doesn't mean. Uh, is is the insanity doesn't mean to continue to do one thing in a certain manner, expecting different results, because that's yeah. not at all what it means. Now, however, an insane person could do that, do the same thing over yeah. and over, but so, that doesn't make it insane. So, by the way, <laughs> none of this shit's on the test. So, this is what the, the biggest thing I'm trying to tell you here is, guys, is that is that you're fucking crazy if you're doing the same thing that somebody else failed at. Yeah. Right. It, it, like if you if they, if yes, they failed yeah. at it. And you don't change anything. You're just going to fail. If you're fucking doing something with a fucked up playbook, and that fucked up playbook's never won anybody a championship, why yeah. are you still fucking doing it? Yeah. That's what I'm getting at. So that is insane. That is fucking crazy, <laughs> right? So, by the way, none on the fucking test is don't repeat the same stupid shit somebody's doing. But, however, there is a fucking learning value behind this. Is that if you're reading the test question, and the test question says this, this has been attempted, then guess what? The choice that you're going to pick isn't that. Does that make sense? So if one of the four choices on this multiple four, uh, choice exam it tells you that the per that they have failed during direct laryngoscopy, then you're not going to pick direct laryngoscopy. Right. And if you do pick a version of that, it's got to be different than what was tried yeah, before. Absolutely. So keep that in mind as you're reading the test question. Um, don't don't have any um, when you're reading these these questions. Don't fucking infer anything. Right. They get they give yeah, the information. They, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So everything in the question is what you need to know. Yes. So read it. And uh these 135 questions you have plenty of time to take them. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. you 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 don't try to like set a personal thing that every question I'm going to only spend this much. Well, just do what you got to do to yeah. answer that question and move forward. Some questions you're going to breeze through some questions you may need to read and think about things a little bit more right yeah but the one thing i will tell you is don't fucking change an answer once yeah, you not, they, they tell you never change an answer unless you are absolutely 100 percent certain if you change an answer and you cannot without a shadow of a doubt tell yourself then don't change it because 99 out of 100 times your first you're gonna answer be wrong is, yeah your first answer is gonna be the right one it's the right one and the uh, thing you change it to is gonna be wrong and yeah. i've seen this happen before the other thing is that i've seen happen before so one of the things people may not know about us is that most of the time when we do um, our air medical program, critical care class, we bring the exam to those that group of people a month later. So we'll do some review, uh, like, you know, four-hour micro-reviews after that and some practice exams, and then we bring the actual paper-pencil tests. Um, and I think that's going to be changing, too. I don't want to speak out of school, but that may be changing a little bit that the actual live tests we do may not be paper pencil you may get your results a little faster cool. um that's a little birdie told us that you know um so um one of the things i've seen people do and it's a fucking shame is that when somebody's uh they've actually skipped an answer left a blank and then filled it in and then they get to the end of the test and their fucking numbers don't match you know or basically mean uh, they're on the last question and there's on the, still one more. Yeah, so like, that fucking sucks. You don't yeah. have the time to correct that. Um, and you don't want to be sitting there guessing on exam questions either towards the end, just Christmas tree shit, because that shit, that just doesn't work out well. Yeah. So, you know, it's really one of those things where there should be very few questions that you just feel puzzled about on there. And, and, and this is, again, from a learning disabled person. Like, I have a learning disability. And I've never been extremely puzzled over what I see on the exam. 
is specifically with airway questions. So um, let's talk about the things that are on there. Obviously, you're going to be asked about rapid sequence intubation. Okay, rapid sequence intubation. Man, it's amazing how some shit you just can't pronounce when you got a little bit of a delicious PBR in you. <laughs> Again, not an official sponsor, but... Um, so, like, rapid sequence intubation or delay sequence intubation is another term there, and we'll see. I'll tell you what that actually means. Those are all fancy terms that you hear in different podcasts and different stuff, different classes, but really, what does it mean and why, how to get through the exam? Well, when you're going to electively take a, a tube, so that means if somebody's breathing and you're choosing on the, on the test to take their airway, you're going to sedate them and paralyze them, there's a time that you use this rapid sequence induction stuff where you deliver a sedative, deliver the paralytic, um, intubate your patient. Um, well, we kind of find out that some patients don't live through that, <laughs> and that's bad. So, they, you know, we're kind of telling people to slow down a little bit. So when you, if you see somebody that basically um, does, is not going to, how do you know that they're not going to do well? during the intubation is basically where I'm getting at. And I'm trying not to do like a whole lesson here. We're just kind of going through little cliff notes is that when you look at the vital signs that you're given. Okay. If the oxygenation is poor, then you're going to have to pre-oxygenate that patient a little bit better. Yeah. Right. So we, let's talk about these P's that they talk about these five, seven, you know, however many P's I'm pretty drunk right now. So I may miss a <laughs> P or two here or there, but I'm going to remember to talk about the important P's. The prepping of equipment, we'll, we'll come back to that. Let's talk about pre-O2 since I was just mentioning that. Okay. All right. So in the test question, if your patient is not oxygenating well, you need to deliver more oxygen than you're giving right now. And don't push meds to intubate that patient till you've ensured that you've done the most that you can do to increase the O2. Did I say that right? Yeah, you did. You've done the most you can do to get that O2 up. Okay? So, you know, um, there's a couple optional ways that we can pre-oxygenate the patient that are exam uh they could be on the exam one is doing passive oxygenation through like uh you know high flow cannula so you can deliver you know as bunch of o2 through a cannula you can do it through a non-rebreather mask okay the one thing you got to remember is that if you're delivering your pre-rsi o2 through one of those devices okay you have to remember that after you sedate the patient, so the patient is now asleep, before you push the paralytic, you have to ensure chest rise and fall. So that means you take that device off. If it's a mask, you can keep a cannula on if you like, and you put a bag valve mask to their face, and you give them a few breaths, and you make sure that the chest rises and falls when you do that. So that's after the sedation, pre-paralysis. Okay, because what's a contraindication for the paralytic medication is that you cannot ventilate this patient. Right, of course. Right? So <laughs> so right off the bat, you definitely want to make sure that be, be in that if you're passively O2ing, so like if you see that in the test question, you can guarantee you that if they didn't mention that you BVM'd them, then BVMing them is going to be part of the answer. Yeah. Okay? So it's a step-by-step process, and that's all they're trying to remember. You know, um, they looked at airways years ago, as uh, and this is from straight up from some of the test developing people that, I've, that I'm hearing, is that they looked at this stuff and they go, you know, these checklists, these things that we do, um, that pilots do all the time, we need to do that for airways. Yeah. So like that heavens criteria um, that's on the exams, well, it's maybe something that you may or may not see, but... It's something that we teach when uh, when we're doing the uh, um, uh, day one or day two there uh, in the class. And, and that criteria, that's something that was developed to, it's almost like a checklist, something to take away the human factors behind what fucks up airways and what fucks up these RSI procedures. So you're, you're basically checking, listing your shit. You're going through, making sure it was done, and you have somebody else doing it with you. So... To take away a human factor from a checklist, okay? So imagine, and I say this with all due respect because I'm a fireman myself, um, you get a mouth breather doing an RSI. How do you take the checklist human factor out of it? Because if you give a fireman a checklist, he checks every box, right? 
does he necessarily do every box? <laughs> no. So how do you take that away? That means that how many people you need to do an RSI? Two. At a minimum, two. Two people of equal skill sets or one person with a greater greater skill set. Yeah. Does that make sense? 100%. So it needs to be two paramedics um, um, or paramedic and a and nurse, nurse that can intubate. But that nurse needs to be able – they both have to be able to do the skill. Right. Because sometimes – it could just be a fresh pair of eyes are needed to do this. Yeah. Does that make sense? That's why sometimes you got two free safeties. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because, man, somebody, sometimes the people get behind you, you know? So, you know, Ryan, so that's a test question. How many fucking people you need? So right off the bat, if you're the highest level provider and there isn't anybody else that can perform the same skill as you on that scene. Right, nobody's going to be there. To then you ain't fucking pushing meds to give that fucking med patient. Tracking. You, you with me? Tracking, so, like, if they're yeah. telling you or it... You ain't pushing meds to do gotcha. that shit. That's a failed fucking airway right there waiting to happen, man. So so just know that. Right now, you could be the higher skill level provider, but there's got to be somebody else there that can also do the same skill. Does right. that make sense? 100%. Yeah. So I hope I explained that well because that's part of the test question shit yeah. That, yeah, that I want people to kind of remember. One of the other things you need to remember on the exam is that they if they put the patient in a position where you cannot traditionally be in the position that you need to be to push meds, you're not our sign. Let me give you the example. Let's say there's a person in a car and I swear to God, this is, the, you know, this is a test question. You got a person that's trapped in a vehicle. There's no way you can get behind them. There's no way you can lay up. So basically and like a tomahawk. Kind of. Yeah. So you're going to be tomahawking the airway. You're going to be doing a face to face intubation. Guess what? If you are going to do that, cool. That looks cool. They go good pictures, but you can't fucking push meds to do that. You're not sedating and paralyzing that patient. RSI is to be done per the exam. And it's again, people do what they do in different protocols, different areas and different stuff. But per the exam, Ryan, this shit needs to be done traditionally, man. What do I mean by that? Well, imagine yourself in an operating room with the patient at the proper height. You... Standing behind the patient, right? That, I mean, you're at the head, behind the head, where you're going to traditionally put the laryngoscope, which is going to be in your left hand, and you're using your right hand to pass the other shit. Does that make sense? Yeah. If you can't do that, then you don't push meds to do that. Does it make sense? Dragon, yep. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's part of the of the whole thing that I'm telling you, that don't infer things because the test question tells you everything. But you need to know exactly where you're at when you're about to do this RSI. The last thing I'll say about that is that this delay sequence intubation stuff, all that they're telling you there is to resuscitate before you intubate. If the blood pressure is low, do what you need to do to get the blood pressure up. If your patient's a trauma patient, don't go to the push dose presser, man, right off the bat. Like people love to do that shit. You know what you do? You give the patient, you stop bleeding, you stop the volume loss, and you give volume. Right, yeah. Right? You give volume. And if your patient's a cardiac patient, then you may, con you know, if it's a cardiac issue causing the shock, then you may consider to do the push dose presser. But in this situation, you position the patient to breathe a little bit better, pre-oxygenate them, and then resuscitate them, and then push your sedatives and your paralytics. Make sense? Yeah. So what should the patient look like that we're going to RSI? They should be pink, warm, and sweet. Pink, pink warm, and sweet. sweet. Right? They should have good color. They should be warmed up. That's right? Sure. Yeah. And make sure the sugar is good. You don't want to fucking intubate somebody that's a hypoglycemic. You just give them sugar. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, 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 you know, and then they're perfusing. That's where the pink color comes in, right? They're perfusing, good sugar. There's just not an overdose of something else. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. we are pink, warm, and sweet. A lot of people forget about the warming up of the patient. That fucking kills all these patients, people. Okay? Hypothermia is an enemy of these freaking patients here. Bring me case in point is that the last FPC I just took was a few, like a couple months ago when I renewed. And, um, man, the hypothermia was all over the place. If they mention the temperature, guess what? It's fucking important. Yeah. 
And uh, remember, you need to, you know, one of the things this last FPC did, and it's just like, um, we weren't fucking hitting on the Celsius. You know, you need to know your Celsius. What's a normal Celsius equated to what, you know, Fahrenheit is. So it's something you need to study. We ain't, gonna, we ain't got enough time to sit here and talk about conversions and shit like that. I will make myself a mental note right now. Study my Celsius because <laughs> that shit's important to know on there. So pink, warm, and sweet, and then we can RSI. All right. Um, as far as like what when when you're giving, when you're doing these resuscitations and volume resuscitations and stuff like that, they may not give you the straight up forward um, um, blood pressure issues or low meat maps. They may give you, they may want you to know how to do that modified shock index. And that's when you take the patient's heart rate. Divided by their systolic. But divided by their systolic pressure. And you're yeah. looking for that uh, point. If it's point greater than 0. 0.9, then the patient needs volume. They're low on volume, right? Well, this is the thing. You may not remember that during the test, but this is, you know, this is the, again, I'm a fireman, so I'm going to say it this way. This is how me, Carlos the fireman, remembers this shit. I'm a mouth breather, so this is how I remember it, is that if the top number is smaller than the bottom number, so when you're doing the division, top number is smaller than the bottom number, then you're okay. going to get a decimal. Right. Right. So it, it so you may not need to do volume then. Okay. But if the top number is bigger than the bottom number, you're getting a something above one. Yeah, you're getting something above one, right? And yeah. I'm a little bit shit faced right now, so I need you to correct me. No, on this yeah, type absolutely. Of shit. So like, or <laughs> then you're looking for like that normal range is like that point five yeah. to point seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, it's like it's not one. That's right, right, right. right. <laughs> the higher you the. Basically, 0.9 and above, you're looking at your probably yeah. going to need some volume resuscitation. Yeah, and you know what? That shit don't change from 20 per kilo, Ryan. Warm, isotonic, crystalloid solution. Let's face it, man. Some people get normal saline. Some places give LR. You know, so it's like, hey, if that's what you're doing, that's what you're doing. Does it make sense? So yeah. Remember that it's going to be a direct formula with a uh, clear-cut stopping point when we're going to stop. It's just not willy-nilly that, hey, this guy's shit is low, so let's give him two units. No, that right. ain't the way it fucking works. You know what I mean? Yeah, nothing's There's arbitrary. A, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We have a formula for the exam, yeah. and that's the shit that I want people to remember. We do this standardized for a certain thing. This is a standardized board exam. Right. Basically, if you can't say why you're doing something, you yeah. shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> and guess what? I don't give a fuck what your protocols are. And you know what? The FPC people, and I don't want, I don't want to speak for them, but they don't give a fuck what you do at your job either. Right. <laughs> you know, hey man, they may your your medical director may be a dumbass. So um he may have you do stupid shit, right? And I just this may be the drunk me talking about this shit, but you you may get a motherfucker saying something stupid, don't do stupid shit, do the standardized shit. Right. You get what I'm getting? Yeah, I'm following. Yeah, so so now let's let's talk about when should I not intubate, when should I use a superglottic airway? Okay. All right. So then, I, not until you look like I'm asking you a question. No, I'm no, a little no, puzzled. I, <laughs> no, no, I was just uh, making sure I understood what you said. Yeah. So, so like you know, what uh, um, rescue airways are something you need to have? Do I necessarily? Am I a fan of them? No, man, because I'm. You know, I I'm, I want an endotracheal tube in the patient. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I also know when I'm beat. You know, I'm gonna be graceful right. and lost. If I've lost, I've lost. So you need to know your rescue airways. You also need to know when, like, hey, I'm going to do a rescue airway before I even try to intubate. Right. And, again, it goes back to the same thing. If I cannot traditionally position, position myself right. in the in a way to intubate, then I am going to make sure that I'm putting a superglottic in. Cause yeah, at the end not going to waste time, you know. Yeah, it's about ventilation. Yeah, who cares, like, your, the skills you use to get the airway. Yes. Like, did you get the fucking airway as good yep. as you could. Yep, you know? yeah, so... Um, just like I told you about the RSI, how many people do we need to dance here? Two. Two, yeah, because right. if you're just doing it by yourself, it's masturbation, right? <laughs> so we're not masturbating when we're talking about laryngoscopy. We're yeah. fucking doing it uh, with two people, right? And, you know, if it's two of the same people, that's cool, too. You know, if it's, you know, two of the different people, then that's cool, too. But as long as both you motherfuckers can intubate, right? that's what we need. So if you're by yourself again, you're probably needing to do a superglottic. Yeah, you know, and it's uh, that's that's what you got. Um, so again, the same person trapped in the car, you can get behind them. Well, guess what? You're in a superglottic that patient. Know the contraindications for those things like you know gag reflex, 
between nothing, anything above or below five or six feet? Well, it depends. You know, they, they come in different sizes now. So yeah. those are like, when we talked about it that one episode, we were talking about like the du- dual lumen yeah, yeah. airways. So I would know for the exam that the dual lumen airways contraindicated in pediatric patients. It's like 50, is that? Under 15. Under 15, okay. So in peds patients, I would make sure that I would know that that is a contraindication. So the, the only time I've ever seen those on the exams, and I know that like the lot, the one podcast, I went through all the different contraindications of it, but the only time I've ever seen those on the exam is the fact that those are, um, they want you to know that the pediatric patients are not going to get those dual lumen airways. Gotcha. You, so you get what I'm saying there? Oh, yeah, I'm tracking. So so you're, so that's what I would know about those. And then I would know, like, you know, the the, the king tube as far as, like, the different uh, procedures to do that as well as the LMA, so on and so forth, because I have seen the, the different ones on there. I also have just seen superglottic as, a, as an airway choice. You with me on that? Yep, follow All right. So, um, so that's what I would know. I would know, like, um, that the last FPC had, like, three criking questions on there. Okay. So, like, when do we do a surgical airway? Um, it's important to know, like, the age of when you would do surgical versus needle. You okay. remember that? Um, put you on the spot there. No, yeah, let's see if I can remember. The uh, age where you do surgical versus needle. Yep. Um, God, I want to say, for some reason, uh, 12 is, like, sticking in my head. Sticks in your head, but it's wrong, but that's cool. <laughs> like I feel like twelve and under, like in my head, I'll say <coughs> needle. Um, but no, I don't recall. You're not wrong at twelve. You're not wrong at twelve. So some some literature depends on what you're looking at. It may say ten years of age. Okay, some may say twelve. So twelve is kind of like a good one to remember. And the way I tell people in class to remember this is remember that when it comes to medical problems, that you know where the the pediatric patient still has a pulse. What separates that from a pediatric to an adult? Okay. It's like pubescent. It's 12 years old or under 40 kilos. So under 12 or under 40 kilos, that's a pediatric patient. You see where I'm getting at? For medical conditions. That also goes for procedures. Procedures that you would do on an adult that are different on peds, we use 12 or under 40 kilos. Okay. That makes sense? Yeah. So that's the way. Again, this is like Carlos's way of remembering and keeping shit straight for the exam. So the magic cage I'm going to use here is 12. And that's why you said 12, because I've repeated that shit a hundred times and you've heard me say it before. Gotcha. Um, there is some literature that you're going to read that may say 10. Gotcha. Okay, but if it looks like a kid, put a needle in there and then do do on, do that. And uh, as well, one of the biggest complaints, you know, I make people watch these boring PHTLS skill videos where they go through the step-by-step shit. Well, they get the test questions from the fucking PHTLS shit. That's where it comes from, right? They, with, and PHCLS gets that from the Nancy Carolyn book or the Brady book, right? So, you know, they come up with these are the steps to do the procedure. The National Registry of EMTs comes through. The, hey, this is the way you're going to do that procedure. Guess what, motherfucker? That's the way you got to do it on the exam. <laughs> so remember a, a few seconds ago, I was talking about stupid medical directors and stupid shit you may see out there. Well, one of those fucking things you may see or fucking do is taking these three millimeter adapters and putting that on the end of the, that angiocath, and you're going to ventilate through that. You know, the three millimeter adapter I, from that ET tube. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, that's fucking stupid. So don't do that. If you're going to do a needle crike, you need to be able to do a jet soufflation device with it, but you need the 50 PSI. And that's the right way to do it. And, and Every class, everybody in the class goes, well, I've never seen one of those. I don't have one of those. You know, we, we do have them here. We show them what they look like. But, yeah, man, I've listen, man, I work. I still work the fire. But I understand you don't got that motherfucker. I work on a helicopter. I understand we don't have that motherfucking thing. You know, I showed you how to make one. We're not going to talk about that here on the show. But the reality is, man, listen, don't fucking pick it on the test if it ain't fucking there. So if you don't have the ability to do a gestuflation thing, then you ain't fucking doing a crike. Uh, not a needle crike. Does that make sense? Right, right. The last thing I want to mention about crikes is these surgical crikes. When you go do them on the test, it's a cannot ventilate. Can't oxygen. Can't oxygenate situation. You're in a failed airway, um, and it's uh, not a rescue device. You, you see where I'm getting at? When you're sur- doing a surgical airway on this test, it's not as a rescue device. It's the fact that just... There's no way you can get this person intubated. Yeah, it's this or nothing. You can't get past that. It's a failed airway as far as a obstructed airway. It's a fucking gotcha. complete airway obstruction that cannot be relieved 
by any other means, you're going to fucking do a surgical crack. And that's the that's the test question. You with me on that? Tracking. Main contraindication for a surgical for a surgical crack is one. Can't identify a landmark. Motherfucker, say that again. Cannot, cannot identify, identify the, the landmark. landmarks. You cannot do a surgical crack on the test. That you will see that. I'm trust me. Somebody's gonna get that. You with me on that? Tracking. All right. So that's your um, your superglottic airway and your surgical crack and all that stuff there. Um, let's go back to prepping gear. So I'm on our side of this patient. Patient's in good condition. I got multiple people to help here. I'm going through the checklist. Things that you need to have in an RSI is the 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 equipment, like suctioning, rescue airways, BVMs. Yeah. You know, make sure all that shit works. That's the stuff you need to have. Like, absolutely, you're going to get questions on that. Yeah. So make sure you have that stuff there. Then they jump into this uh, pre-O2, which we talked about, and then the uh, pre-medications. They use a mnemonic load. I don't know. Some people don't use load, but Turn then lidocaine, oxy, atri- or not uh, as far uh, opiates, lidocaine. <laughs> right? Lidocaine opiates. Were we okay? Yeah, I'm off track. Then I'm, I was I was referring to something we talked about recently, but not at all. Where I think you're no, wrong. no, you're you're right. So so lidocaine load stands for lidocaine, um, opiates, okay, atropine, and then defasciculating dose. So. Of a non-depolarizing neuromuscular, neuromuscular blocker. So it's right, a big right, right. fucking, that D stands for a big fucking mouthful of shit. Yeah. Non-depolarizing like, <laughs> neuromuscular blocker. So like, yeah. so, or like Vec or Rock, rather. Yeah. You know what's funny is I'm going to say this, and it's, but it's. Yes, Vec again, or Rock. <laughs> so it's the, it's the podcast, and, you know, it's like people that know me, and you come through, you know. It, that, so you use a low mnemonic. I always tell people, hey, don't worry about that D yet. Because it's going to take me a while to explain this. And I'm Hispanic. And the way I say it is going to fuck you up. And But I do explain it well. And people always usually remember it when I get done with it. So we're going to hold on to that D for a second. All right. You gonna hold, hey, hold on to my D. <laughs> Got it. Hey, so so we talk about lidocaine. Like, so lidocaine is the regular 2% lidocaine. You know, 1 to 1.5 milligrams per kilo. That you're going to give IV prior to this. Um, that there are assignments. And um, the big thing you need to remember there is that it doesn't decrease ICP. The biggest reason we're using it, it doesn't decrease it's to prevent the ICP from getting worse. Does that make sense? Because when the patient goes hypo- that period of hypoxia that we're going to cause, that period of apnea, that period when we're doing the direct laryngoscopy, all of that increases ICP. So if your patient's a head injury, it's important to make sure that you're doing some prophylaxis. Yeah, we're not exacerbating. Yeah, you know? exactly. So that's where the lidocaine kind of comes into play there. Um, the mm-hmm. opiate is for the patient is in pain. So if it's a traumatic patient that you're doing an elective intubation on, you need to treat the pain there. Usually fentanyl is the one that's used there. And the reason we we're doing that is, is because if you stop pain, yeah. you decrease the old. This is what we were talking about the other day. If you stop the pain then you're going to decrease the O2 demands, and now you have more oxygen available for the RSI. Right, yeah. And and, and I may have just explain that um, in like a, not how a doctor would explain it, but that's the way they mean it. Does that make sense? 100%, 100%. So, again, you just want more available O2 for the procedure I'm going to do, so treat the fucking pain. Yeah, yeah, the patient's not in pain. You know, their heart rate comes down a little bit. Like you said, yeah. it decreases the O2 demand, yeah. you know, which decreases or at least prevents the increase of ICP. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Those, abs- yeah, I'm tracking. So, and then you got the atropine. Again, the atropine is kind of controversial, and I can tell you it's probably something I don't fucking do all the time. But consider giving atropine specifically for secretion purposes is that the anticholinergic portion of it is going to dry the patient up. And that's why you want to give the atropine, okay? So, in, uh, and, uh, you know, may, if you've got a, a baby, may consider doing that. Um, if you're giving a, um, ketamine, you may give some atropine because ketamine does increase in some patient secretions. So, it's important to kind of think about that. All right, so now we're to the D. <laughs> and I always remember, it said, like, D has got a lot. So, I always think of D as in, you know, eight. Hey, Listen, this is our podcast. I gave you a disclaimer before. But think of D as dick, right? So it's like a fucking, what does that mean? Well, what I'm about to say is going to come out like I have two dicks in my mouth. So 
you know, it's a defasciculating dose of a non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocker. Defasciculating dose of a non-depolarization, non-depolarizing neuromuscular neuromuscular blocker. So basically, you're going to do this because you're going to give the patient succinylcholine. Right, and you want right. to prevent that, the fasciculation. Well, it's the fact that it's pretty bad on certain people, like the, the elderly, the cardiac patients, the very young. You don't want that full depolarization of the of all these neuromuscular sites. Yeah, it's an intense reaction. Yeah, absolutely, and it could be pretty detrimental to certain patients. So like putting your finger in a light socket. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So what we want to do here is use something that's not sucks, um, so something like rock. Yeah. And you're using 10% of the paralyzing dose. So you're going to figure out what your whole paralyzing dose of rock would be. So if I'm going to use rock to paralyze somebody, like, I, would, I would let's say I'm going to use 10 milligrams. Well, in this situation, I'm only use one milligram. Does that make sense? Right. I basically want to temper, make the succinylcholine reaction smoother for the patient. Yeah. So I'm using the rock to smooth out the succinylcholine. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like getting jabbed in the face as opposed yeah. to like hooked in the face. <laughs> For most people that don't get punched in the face for sport like you do, um, you know, it would be just, you know, it's a mixer yeah. for like tequila, right? So, you know, tequila for some people tastes better in a margarita than just straight mm-hmm. up tequila. It's like you know? spiked punch. You don't realize yeah, it's yeah, happening. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, so basically that's what that is. That's what the defasciculating dose is there. And we're going to do that for that patient. So once you do that, one of the things that you should have done at the beginning uh, is position the patient appropriately. Your patient, when we're going to start this RSI, should be in the same position that you're going to perform the intubation in. And I'm a fan of the head elevation, being like semi-fowlers, even more because you know what? It prevents aspiration. It just gives a better breathing position for the patient, and it makes laryngoscopy a whole lot better. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So definitely one of the things that you should definitely, you know, position your patient for success right off the beginning if possible. Um, then placement of the tube. So now this is where I may say some stuff that's controversial. You know, um, there's the people that are traditionalists and fucking shit, Brian. <laughs> Let me tell you, this is uh, when it comes to EMS and the fire service and the helicopter world is uh, we've always done it this way. You know, and it's like, uh, you, you know, and I love when people say that shit because I'll look at them and I go, where the fuck did you tie your horse up when you came here today? Yeah. You know what I mean? Because, yeah. like, hey, you motherfucker obviously drove a car. You're still not riding a fucking horse. So why would you still, in the day and age of video laryngoscope, not use a fucking video laryngoscope? I don't know why you wouldn't. You, you see what yeah. I'm saying? So, like, um, if you have video laryngoscopes, a standard of care in our in our industry, and you need to be comfortable with it. So, um, that uh, that's all I'm gonna say about that. And, you know, and and like you know that when we train in class, video laryngoscopes a big part of what we do. Yeah, yeah. So we make sure that people are looking at these, and we don't just get the one that we like. We get every version of it. So, you know, we 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 don't spend our money on you know cool shit. You know, other than. We spend our money on fucking video laryngoscopes. <laughs> so, you know, you're going to see every possible version. You know, obviously there's some that I can't fucking afford, you know, because, you know, I'm paying for this myself. So um, there's some that uh, it takes me a while to make sure, you know, that it trickles down. But, you know, we, we will talk about We'll try to expose you to the best shit that we can out there. Um, so that's when I, Ooh, that's a good one. Waiting for that. Yeah, I know, man. And you feel better now. <laughs> I just tasted the sandwich I gave you earlier. <laughs> so like, you know, what I'm saying is controversial is that what I said, okay, let me rephrase this. When I said that I was going to say some controversial shit, this is what I mean. I feel that if you don't have the ability to video laryngoscope, yeah, I'm going to say this shit. Okay, if you can't video laryngoscope, then you should take the fucking RSI meds away. You can't video laryngoscope or um, innovate in the sense that you don't have one available to you. You don't have a video laryngoscope available to you. Okay. Then you probably should not be considering using RSI. Because you're you're doing something, you're doing standard of care, but like just part of it. You know what I mean? You don't wear half a condom, do you? So let me ask you this then, just to kind of play devil's advocate. So let's say you're somewhere where, you know, your your protocols 
obviously allow you to innovate um, in whatever circumstances, but you just happen to be that that uh, um, entity that doesn't have video learn to copy like uh, yeah, capabilities. So, like, are, do you, so so no, so, so let's say it's in my protocol and they don't provide me the equipment, then I must then I you can intubate. I wasn't necessarily speaking to the fucking practitioner out there. Okay, I was I was speaking for the practitioner out there. So these cheap motherfuckers that run these ambulance companies and these helicopters gotcha. and, they don't, and they don't put fucking the right equipment on there. Track. Then don't fucking give the guys the meds to fail, bro. Right. Track. Track. Yeah. You're going to hold this Basically, guy. Basically, like, why at this day and age? Like, why isn't it, it just, it shouldn't even be an option. Like, you should just have video yeah. and scope capabilities yeah. anywhere where you Yeah, can absolutely. Innovate, absolutely. The shit, the technology yeah. is cheap enough now. Track. Yep. 100%. So, right. So you should have the shit. You know, I'm a broke man mm. from Pine Hills, and I own, like, seven video laryngoscopes. <laughs> so why doesn't a fucking multi-million dollar operation... Right, like, you've got no excuse. Yeah, fuck that shit. You got an ambulance, you got wheels on that motherfucker. Yeah, so you know? fucking the doctor needs to get off his ass and push for it. Yeah. The fucking administrators that are putting... Don't put your people in bad fucking positions is what I'm talking about. And that's the controversial shit that I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah, fucking give people the right equipment or take the fucking drugs away. Yeah, we ain't got muskets no more. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. Hold on, I'm over. we don't line up in front of each other to shoot each other. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It's like, come on, motherfuckers, do the right shit. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna get off of it because I get pissed off about that shit. <laughs> so you know, um, how deep should you put your tube in? Um, two thirds or the. Two thirds of the way, the length of the tube. So three times the size of the tube, right? That's the thing. That well, if you got like yeah. a, an eight tube, you want. Or like a 24, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. There Three go. times the size of That's two. That's what I meant. So, so you know, like, listen, man, like that that works. You know what I mean? Why do people still bury tubes? I I have no idea. So one of the things that we show them in class is if you look at the um, where the pilot balloon comes out, the little balloon where you're gonna inflate the cuff. Yeah, right? and you got that little you know tube coming off yep, the side yep. tube. So it comes out of the side of the ET tube. I always tell people that depending on the size of the tube, that's at a different area. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. However, if you notice that if you take that right where the, that balloon's coming out, right where that hose comes out to fill your, your balloon, yep, yep. if you line that up with the corner of the mouth. So where the, the balloon tubing comes out of the ET tube itself, it yep. kind of wise off. Yeah, and uh, you put it at the corner of the mouth. Gotcha. You're just deep where you need to be. Gotcha. And it's usually pretty close to that three times the size of the tube. I've always done that, and that's always kept me from right main stemming my patients. Gotcha. Right main stemming my patients. Man, I'm slurring the fuck out of my words. <laughs> so, you know, that that's just the safest way to do it. And then let's inflate the cuff. Well, it doesn't take 10 mLs for everybody to get the cuff where you need it to be. Right. We do cause a lot of permanent damage by just giving everybody 10. No, sir, ma'am. You're going to give... Just enough to make sure you don't have a leak. So no. start off small with that, like, you know, 5 mLs. And then they do make devices that tell you you have plenty of pressure there. You know what I mean? Right, Again, right. let's not get into that hole because it's a whole bunch of numbers and I'm pretty fucking drunk. So, but just make sure you, uh, uh, 10 is never the answer. Right. Okay. Unless you have to. And take your fucking 10 cc syringes away. Because if you give somebody a 10 cc Duran, they're going to give you fucking 10 mLs. (laughs) So take that away from the freaking thing. Um, The different meds, like the uh, the, when would I use Atomidae versus ketamine on the exam, those are pretty, like, beat up subjects. But uh, we'll just mention them real quick. So the asthma patient you're about to RSI on the exam is going to get some ketamine, right? Because it's got some bronchial dilation properties to it. Your, your hypotensive patient that you've tried other means of getting their blood pressure up or their borderline hypotension or you just resuscitated their blood pressure, ketamine would probably be the better choice. You see where I'm getting at there? Um, Etomidate, does it drop your blood pressure? Well, man, that's a fucking huge argument. And I could tell you that um, I said at this conference, at that critical care transport conference a few years ago, and this doctor did a great study on it. And he basically showed that um, what drops people's blood pressure during our size is shitty stuff you do. It's got nothing to do with the meds, you know? Um, however, if somebody's adrenal insufficiency patients, like your septic patients, and they, they go as long and they go, they mention that during the exam, during the question, then probably don't pick Atomidate. Okay. You see what I'm getting at? Cause Atomidate is going to drop that, that, that adrenal is going to make that adrenal sufficiency worse in theory. But when you look at the studies that have talked about this poor adrenal insufficiency problems, 
is usually people that were like in an Atomidate drip or receive multiple doses of Atomidate. It isn't just the 1.3 milligrams per, per kilo kilogram. that you're giving the patient. Does that gotcha. make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, do I use succinylcholine versus rock? If sucks has all these bad side effects, why don't we just use rockaronium on there? You know, me, you know, it's funny is that me and Robbie argue about this all the time. <laughs> Robbie is of the of the mindset that we should give rockaronium just across the board. Forget the succinylcholine. Okay. And, um, you know, Robbie isn't wrong. It's just that would be the safest thing to do in, a, in certain circumstances. But I think that succinylcholine is still around because it goes away pretty fast. And if you can't get this patient fucking intubated, right. you know what I mean? That's still the fucking thing that I roll back to. It's yeah. like, hey, Locker man. Vec, you're committed. Yeah, like, so you got a guy that's, you know, our guys around here that are teaching that, um, you know, they're really confident at their airway skills. They're good at it. We practice it all the time. But who has the luxury of fucking having cadavers all the time and fucking intubating like we do? You know what I mean? So that's what makes us super confident at it. That could be a bad thing. You're too fucking overconfident. You could fail, man. I mean, and it would be a great time to have this short-acting paralytic there, you know, like yeah, the succinylcholine yeah. that goes away pretty fast. Um, remember your dantrolines for your malignant hypothermia if you're giving sucks. sucks yeah. That's on the fucking test. Don't be an idiot. You know that's uh, going to be there, so remember that shit. Remember what those signs and symptoms are. If you want more information on that, come to class because we're going to have, you know, we have one January 25th through the 30th, you know, so that's one of those things. Um, and lastly but surely here, Ryan, is that um, if it isn't something that would be done for real, then it isn't something that's going to be the choice on the test. Like using an ET tube as a chest tube type Yeah, shit. that type of shit. Yeah, <laughs> right? So those are never good choices. And then if it's on non-traditional or something like that, um, don't fucking pick that as the answer, man. Gotcha. You know, the test is basically meant to see if you're a safe, prudent practitioner. Right. An expert, you know, this is like an entry level. This is what is expected for the entry level flight paramedic, the entry level uh, flight nurse when you take these board exams. And it's just like this is the shit you need to know, man. You know, like so what I'm saying is, is, that, is that if you cram for it. Um, more than likely you're going to fail. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like you don't cram for things. That yeah. You, you know. Yeah, you absolutely. Know and, you know, we we obviously, we we travel the country and we've taught for many different places. And people, um, sometimes we've had, you know, the the initial few uh, classes we did, we were like 50%, you know, successful at getting. So half the group would passed. I would say, you know, to kind of patting ourselves on the back here a little bit, that the last, like, you know, uh, two years of our existence as the rescue company won, we're, you know, 80% successful sometimes. We've been, like, 100% successful, knock on wood, the last, co you know, the last few times, you know? Yeah. So mm -hmm. so that's fucking awesome, you know? So when you get 12, 12 out of 12 pass, you know, I'm like, fuck, man, that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, you know, but it's just that we've broken it down and we've convinced those 12 people to learn the job, not to learn to pass the test. Yeah, so after all the shit that I've gone through, that's my fucking parting message that I kind of want to give people is that this, this is an exam that proves you know how to do the job, not that you know how to pass the exam. You know, right? You, you know, we, we talk about like the different things, you know, like, you know, people go through like selection to be a Green Beret and and you look at a Green Beret team. You have, you know, um, correct me on this. You got 12 guys on these on these teams that. They're all experts at right, their yeah. job, right? Yeah, you've usually got like two of each. I've, you know, 18 yeah. Bravo, Charlie Delta. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, uh, and correct me again if I'm wrong, is that these guys, these, um, these small teams, they call them force multipliers because they go out there and they train indigenous people wherever they're fucking at to do the job, how to be a soldier, right? Yeah, I mean, that's in particular the Green Berets' job. Yeah, is, right. Is to train foreign militaries to basically be a larger extension of what they are, you know, as a 
smaller group, but to basically. So if I'm getting this right, they call these guys, they're all like, you know, the, the explosive sergeant or the, or the medical sergeant or the weapons sergeant, right? Because those are, uh, sergeants teach people in the military, right? You're a supervisor, educator in a sense in your job, correct? Am I? Well, like the, the sergeant is part of the rank structure, but like, you know, um, you've got like your sergeant, staff sergeant, sergeant first class, math sergeant, first sergeant, sergeant major, um, command sergeant major. Um, but, uh, it's technically if you're a sergeant, um, you know, you're in a leadership position regardless. Um, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with your job. Um, Mm. because regardless of your job, you know, you can still share the same rank with anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, you know, uh, but one of the things I'm getting at with this is that those guys go there and they're fucking basically in a sense like a, uh, a, uh, um, subject matter expert, subject matter expert at their fucking field Certainly, and they they can pass that on to somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So, you know, uh, it's funny because in the world of the people that we're training, when you look at like, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of fucking, um, accreditation paperwork and stuff like that. Do you know that um, most of our instructors here on paperwork, I refer to them as uh, uh, cohorts and not um, and, and uh, not like staff or anything like that? Because basically the, the reason that they use that terminology is that anybody that's a specialist, so you either see cohort or specialist in the paperwork, they can relate that information back to somebody else. Yeah. And that's what it is. So that's why, you know, you work here, you're on our deployment team, you're on the stuff, you're a specialist at your job. You see what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100% so, so, that's, so that's what this FPC and CFRN and all these board exams are basically proving is that you're an expert at your job. Now, being an expert doesn't mean you're a know-it-all. You can, exp- you know what I mean? You're, there's shit. I, I still have to look shit up, Ryan. I don't know all this shit. You know, I still have to look this shit up, but I strive for that specialist position every yeah. day, man. I'm always striving to it. And you just cannot expect to fucking be, you know, cramped to be a specialist for the day. You see what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, that? absolutely. You know, and that's why I always think that I think they're renewing by CU. These boards are fucking bullshit, man. Like, I think that should go away. <laughs> You know, I think that should go away, and I think that you want your certification renewed, take the fucking test again. Oh, gotcha, yeah. Because that's, the you were your sharpest at this information the day you took that motherfucking yeah, test. Yeah, 100%. And quite frankly, you know, the the, the the way things are is that you could be at an aircraft or a uh, helicopter or plane or a critical care ambulance, so you're not doing a lot of the certain stuff that's being asked of you. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, you get grandfathered into certain things, and you get grandfathered into to bad ways of being, you know, and you, yeah. don't, you don't move with the times, and yeah. it just becomes a, a nature of the beast. And, yeah, you should absolutely have to be continually uh, prove that you're operating at the level you are expected to be operating at and that you still have the, the, yeah. the, the mindset and the knowledge to, you know, show and, and articulate that, you you know, you're still up to speed. Yeah, and, and you know, man, this is basically, man, listen, man, we can beat this dead horse or down. Nobody's going to listen to a drunk guy, but he's saying on his fucking <laughs> podcast. But, you know, it's just my opinion uh, that I think that, you know, um, don't expect to cram and past. Yeah. You're going to get what you put into it. Don't expect to cram on for this and pass the test. Sorry. Yeah, I mean. I, and, go ahead. And you know, not to sound again like my grandpa, you know, the grandpas always make the shit sound like, you know, they always had it the hardest right. and all that. And I know I've said that before, but like, just what I'm saying is that, you know, when I took the test for the first time, there was no such thing as a review course or anything like that. It was just basically, hey, we're going to test you on the following things. And you went out and you fucking read books and you got the information and then you fucking took the test. Yeah. You, and, and it's cool now that we have review courses and things you can take and find and stuff. But nah, man, you know, don't don't you gotta fucking read the shit. And I still read the stuff every day. I still look at twelve leads every day when I go into work. I sit on the shitter and I read, look at twelve leads. You know, I look at I med calc. I fucking look up medications. You know, I keep my mind going every day that I can because that's the shit that's important for this exam. So, um, yeah, that's all I got.
<laughs> cool, man. You know, thanks for people listening out there. You know, again, you can, uh, you know, make sure you click on the likes and yeah, check us out on uh, social media um, mm-hmm. and whether it's our podcast platforms. Um, you know, like you can check out what we got going on in our recent events on our Facebook. You know, just to keep up to speed, you can get on YouTube, watch our um, latest videos. Um, you know, again, we just did our end uh, off recently, our yeah. helicopter search and rescue end off. We got a video posted up on it. Go check yeah. it out. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, like, comment, share, uh, you know, anything that you're, you're you're interested in that we put up. You know, yeah. we appreciate that. Uh, it helps people, you know, just uh, be drawn into us and, and become familiar with what we've got going on. Yeah, and, um, and and you know, just come up and sign up for some classes too, man. Come hang out. We're fun people. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, and you know, we like uh, to drink. Yeah, <laughs> you know, professionally. You yeah. know, so. Uh, but no, you, you know, come to class. I think that we give information in a, in a, in a different way. But we can appeal to all different styles of learning. So that's kind of like I think we're, we're successful. We're, not I think. I know we're successful. In it's that a matter. huge part of our dynamic is our yeah. ability to um, articulate ourselves to our audience yeah. um, and deliver ourselves appropriately um, to whoever we're in front of. You know? and, and, you know, one of the things that I think is, God, and I just, you know, me and you talked about this the other day, and is that. Um, and we've got some crap about it, but you know, we are still doing face to face, hands on training. Yeah. We haven't stopped. And it's because you cannot fucking teach our job over a computer screen. You cannot yeah. teach our job the way it is. You got to get your hands on some shit and, um, you got to come here and do it. And, uh, you know, um, that being said, if you look at shit, when we're pretty close to each other, we're wearing masks, we're making sure we're checking temperatures, we're. We're respectful of the environment, you know, we're making sure that everything stays clean and we we try and we are fucking overboard on making sure that our students and our instructors are going to be safe. So we keep our numbers small, which, you know, we've always done that anyways for safety. Right. Even before COVID was around, we always had small classes so people would get a lot more repetition. But we do do some stuff in class where we're doing night operations or we're in the water where we don't need to be hurting cats, you know. Yeah. So we've always kept our numbers really small so we can social distance and do the stuff. But we make the instructors wear masks, students wear masks when we're breaking those six feet rules and stuff. So so we are pretty safe, um, but we are still going to do hands-on training. Yeah, and I think uh, this kind of thought that comes to me, I think it's really important that we uh, – facilitate that hands-on and in-person training because regardless of whatever course of instruction we're given whether it's in um, you know something medical or search and rescue or you know land navigation what have you at the end of the day whatever the course curriculum is like that's not the only thing we're teaching you because at the same time we're teaching you discipline accountability we're trying to uh, to show it and and emanate this this compassion that we operate with like I can't I can't teach you some of the things that I want to express to you unless I can stand in front of you and share my energy with you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, like, like you can you can sit here in a class or be on a Zoom call or a conference or whatever and, and get some information, retain some information and comprehend it and walk away and, and say that you've got it in your back pocket. And to an extent, like sometimes that's all you can do. But at the end of the day, like I want to capitalize on every opportunity I have to get in front of you. And yeah. To, to embody who I am and, and and try to just give that to you with yeah. the training that I'm giving you. No, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And, you and, know. and find and, and to be able to stand in a room with you and look at you and feel you and look, listen to you and figure out the best way to deliver what I have that I have for you. How, how do I give that to you best? And I can do that when I stand in front of you and just watch you and, and, and just be a part of that feeding off of each other. You know, you don't get that on Zoom, yeah. man. You know? Yeah. You, you, you know, uh, I know we're trying to get off this, <laughs> the thing, you know, it's funny that the last thing I'll say, this conversation with this medic the other day. So there's a medic, he's a buddy of mine, he's going to nursing school, and it's not Robbie, because people can go to Robbie, but it's another buddy of mine that's going to nursing school. And he's like, you know, man, is you know, he's in a, what they call like a fast track program where, you know, paramedics and LPNs and stuff like that can, uh, uh, <clears throat> I think like a respiratory therapist, they can all like, basically skip this basic portion of nursing and kind of being a faster Tracking, program yeah. for it. Like the bridge program? Type? Bridge program, yeah, yeah, that type of shit, yeah. So not a fan of those motherfucking things because, you know, I'm a traditionalist in what I do, man. So how do you feel about nurses coming kind of backwards and 
and I come in, come in this like, you know, I, I really think that. Um, so obviously there's places where nurses can go to EMT school and then challenge the medic, medic exam. And then they're also on their paper medic. As long as you recognize the fact that when you do that, just like the fast tracking through the nursing program do, you're missing certain basic shit. 100%. Okay. You see where I'm getting yep. at? I didn't mean that, to make you digress no, no, from your no, point. No, 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 no. You didn't. You yeah. actually led me to my point. My point is this, Ron. It's like this dude's talking about, man, he made me do beds the other day and do all that stuff. And and, and a guy that teaches nursing school like me and, like, that's, that's put his heart into the job, and I'm a traditionalist and I've studied the history behind it. Do you know why it is important to learn bed making when you're in nursing school? Why is that hugely important? I would have to, if I had to guess, top of my head, one, hygiene and psychological purposes. Uh, exactly. That, no, no, that, you're, you're fucking 100% right. It's called activities of daily living, and it's called maximizing that person's feel-good time. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. That may not be the way Florence fucking Nightingale said it, but this is the way I'm saying it is the fact that is that, you know, um, there's a admiral that does this uh, commencement speech at, the univer- uh, at a university, and he's a Navy SEAL admiral, and he talks about to be great in life, to be successful, to be a successful person, the number one rule in his world is that you start your day by making your bed. Oh, yeah. Because even if you've had a bad day, you at least get to come back home to a bed that's nice and neat. Yeah, there's some serious psychological yeah. power in there. Yeah, and the, and the reality is this, bro. That they, they, they're like, um, when you have a person that's sick, skin's broke. That a wrinkle in a bed could break down a skin. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And if the bed isn't made appropriately, then it pulls in and like it, it yeah. crumples up towards the middle. Now, when my partner's looking for a piece of sheet to pull. Now he's going to hurt his back because he's pulling inappropriately, right? Yep. But if the bed was made appropriately, he would have plenty of sheet there to pull from. Yeah. There's a fucking whole lot of ways that I can go about it, but it's bit little fucking things matter. Yeah. And to bring it full circle, airway, the basics, little fucking steps matter, man. Yeah. See y'all next time, man. <laughs>